BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Bitch, it's me, your wizard Holden McNeely. <laughs> At least you think it is, but it's actually Freddy Krueger. <laughs> Welcome to our Nightmare on Elm Street episode. And it's me, your cool, calm, supportive boyfriend, Johnny Depp. I mean, Glenn. And uh, hey, I know it's crazy, but did you hear about how the Balinese people defeat nightmare monsters in their dreams sometimes? I don't know. Just run in my mouth. I wonder if that'll come in handy later. Jake, it's your it's your sweet grandmama. Oh, I'm I'm over here. I'm, what? I'm having a please come closer, Jake. Oh, of course. It's me. You know your grandmama. Yeah, yeah but, I got you again. <laughs> oh, damn it. Why did I trust knowing that I was in the dream realm of a nightmare <laughs> being capable of taking on any form and yet I still Oh wait, hold on. One more. Hey, it's me, your drunken mom. Just go to sleep. I barred all the windows. Lockity blockity. Mama, come on. Please, Mama, put the bottle down. Mama, no. Mama, why? I represent the failure of adults to protect the best interests of their children. Mama, no. Mama, please. Locky, locky, blocky. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> I'm sorry. That, that line is, is seared into my brain. That drunk mom. All right, so we're just covering the first movie. Yeah, by the way, we are we we are ju- we were going to try to do the first 3 and there's just so much in the first one and I want to give it its due and I hopefully maybe I don't know how we would do this in the future but I would love to return to the franchise. We do each one. We do we do I mean, the homoerotic second one. We do the awesome dream warriors. We do 4 and right. 5 where the lord just goes off the rails and it's just a bunch of demon puppets fucking See, and sucking each other. Yeah, I think maybe a yeah, 4 and 5 maybe maybe we'd group them later because like I love Dream Warriors like Dream Warriors really was such a standout to me but the cool thing about this franchise is I think I think the thing I re-realized with the first movie unlike uh, Friday the 13th unlike a lot of uh, the the movies that we we've come to know and love for their franchises especially Friday the 13th though as an example like Nightmare on Elm Street, everything is there in the first one. Mm-hmm. The the knife hand, Freddy's backstory, the the really cool like dreamscapes, Freddy's like crazy boiler room mm-hmm. lair. Um all of the uh, you know, and then all of the kills are like really 
you know, sometimes arguably we were just talking about some of the like animatronics or like some of the, you know, the look of things can be a little, especially in hindsight, very cheesy. Like, especially the ending when the mom gets pulled through the, oh my God. the door, it's like such a mannequin. It's like not even funny, but that all that said still in that first movie, everything's really like established and really there in a way that like, if you remember Friday the 13th, Jason's hardly barely in the first movie. Mm-hmm. Except for that final jump scare. And then even in the second movie, he's wearing a potato sack the whole time. I mean, it's laughable. So like all the things we've come to know and love when it comes to Friday the 13th were like slowly established over a few films. Whereas Nightmare on Elm Street, man, they bring it from the very beginning. And then when you get to Dream Warriors, again, it's just I love the conceit. And I think when they start making interesting spins on Nightmare on Elm Street, Dream Warriors like weirdly becomes like a superhero movie halfway through. Uh, and 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 then later on with New Nightmare, when they get into the meta, when it's Freddy is like terrorizing like the people making the movie Nightmare on Elm Street. It's so smart and so, so well done whenever they twist on it. But this because the reason why is because the first one and it really kind of the one two punch of the first two does such a good job of immediately like exploring this concept of being tortured in a dream world by this like n- horrific nefarious you know monster of of the dreamscape it's great so i've talked about this before in the past but i was an easily frightened child i never gravitated towards horror movies like to the point where just the idea that like here is a a sensory experience designed to make you feel upset was enough for me to like just you know walk fast in the aisles of blockbuster video so that i don't even see like a scary vhs box yeah and freddy krueger the, the horror aisle of blockbuster we, comes will up always every time. be will always be more terrifying than anything in any of the movies i've never been more scared in my life turns than out just puppet walking. master 3 is not in fact a uh, <laughs> blood churning experience it's kind of a weird 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 little movie don't get me started on ghoulies yeah i mean Please, just yeah, those those box arts were amazing. But that being said, uh, you know, Freddy Krueger with his like burnt flesh and the open sinews, I never thought he was funny. Like, you know, <laughs> I just uh doing some research on our on the internet archive, there's tons of like Freddy fan newsletters, and they're all written in like the first person, just being like, Hello, Freddy fans, it's me again, ready to slice and dice my way to the theaters. <laughs> and it's just like, I never found the character appealing. I mean, Robert England is like, uh, you know, charming enough, and like, he definitely owns the role and makes it distinctive. But like, as, 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 a, I'm as less of a scared kid and more of a weird kid, especially in the 80s and 90s. What did Freddy Krueger represent for you that like made him a mainstay on like lunchboxes and posters and uh, novelty rap albums? I'm not sure if there is a novelty rap song. Okay. Oh, there's super is. Yeah, yeah, there's super is. I think Will Smith, right? April, if you can if you can play just any novelty rap song uh, with Freddy Krueger, please insert it now. Yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, I, 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 I know which one she played. A Nightmare on My Street. 
by Will Smith, <laughs> uh, which, yeah, tells the story full on, tells the story of Freddy Krueger, which is crazy, right? Like, when was that happening before this? When was when was someone like, I'm going to put a song out about like a hit blockbuster movie completely away from, I mean, that's like how much of a splash this made with so many different communities, especially like centered around, you know, uh, fans of horror. And I think, I think it's because of kind of already what I said, like he's so splashy from the get, you know? Mm-hmm. And not only that, but unlike these faceless, voiceless characters like Michael Myers and Jason, like he is, you see his full face and he talks and he has a personality. And like, I think later in life when I came to, for me, Nightmare on Elm Street and Freddy Krueger were like, also unseeable un like they were like these ter- t- just terrifying entities that i also did not care for until later on in life i mean i don't know how many kids you're a pretty unique kid if you're like a young kid and really into freddy krueger right i mean mm. the basic concepts terrifying in so many ways for so many people sleep though was such a sensitive thing. It always is mm-hmm. as a kid into adulthood. I mean, I was thinking about this last night. Sleep, I think one of the things that is really, really impactful when it comes to this conceit is that like sleep is as, almost as important, if not as important as food and water in terms of survival. You have to have it. It is necessary for you to operate. You, If you go a certain amount without sleep, you will... You will die. You will lose your mind and die. And that's first thing will happen. You will lose your mind, which is like a scary, you know? And one of my favorite things about the movie and the whole series is that like, not only is the monster terrifying, but then the whole aspect where you're, you're trying to stay up for days on end in order to not deal with the monster, in order to evo- evade the monster is just as like harrowing to me. And, and that's all throughout the movie. And then on top of that, when you do sleep, you lose total control. And I think that lack of control really taps into something primordial with people and is really effective in a horror film. Because what's scary in a horror film is when the person's trapped in the house and the monster's coming towards them and they don't have any weapons or anything to defend themselves and they're backed into a corner. Well, I mean, in the dream world, it's like a constant... It's just you're always that way. I mean, you can't even run correctly when Mm. you sleep. You know, you run inadequately. Like, everything just feels bad. So, therefore, like, the the stairwell with the pancake mix that we'll talk about... (laughs) Um, uh, in in a little while, like that was really effective. Is that feeling of like not being able to like get up just a simple staircase is really upsetting mm-hmm. to all of us, and we all have these anxiety dreams, you know. So I think late, and then as life went on, as I got older, and I finally, you know. Told the story a million times. Spent a summer in college watching all of the Nightmare on Elm Streets and all the Friday the 13th leading up to Freddy vs. Jason coming out. And that experience really gave me the full education. Obviously, I saw the movies, but I think the real secret of Freddy that you don't get as much in the first one. He's a lot more just terrifying and monstrous (laughs) and all of that. But as the series goes on, he gets funnier and funnier and sillier and like it still maintains the violence and the craziness you know but it's just that whole aspect of of Robert England's performance is really really wonderful and surprising and something that like 
you know, Nintendo don't, right? Mm. Something that Jason don't, something that Mike Myers don't, right? Like he can be really expressive. He can be really chatty and talkative and, and jokey and funny. And then at the same time, of course, obviously in the dream world, I mean, fucking blood can come flying out of beds and you know he can rip his face off and be like a screaming skeleton face and have these long creepy imposing arms oh the arms is such a brilliantly simple but upsetting effect simple fucking way upsetting effect especially to a a younger person because it's just it's it ain't right Mm -hmm. it ain't right and it's coming towards you and it's just so and it's like not necessarily aggressively violent oh my god Freddie was slender man before for Slenderman. Exactly. And so it, there's just so much fun to be had. It's such a funner playground in terms of a horror franchise than like any other one because of its basic conceit. And, you know, there are awful Freddies, of course. There's really, really bad ones. But um, there's a fucking handful of solid ass ones, you know? And even in the bad ones, there's going to be a kill or two that's going to be really fun to watch just because they can do anything. And so they do. And it's great that way. The big eureka moment, because I had never watched this movie until we did, you know, we decided to do our research on it. And the big like, oh, it all makes sense now is when I realized that what the first Nightmare on Elm Street is, is a fascinating like hybrid of uh, classic slasher trope. Like, here's the killer. They're going to pick the kids off one by one. They're going to be screaming. There's going to be blood. There's going to be guts. But it's also like the exact kind of uh, kid or at least young people focused fantasy blockbuster. Yeah. That, you know, the Spielberg era in the 80s were like perfecting. Yes. All the kids are super relatable. Uh, you know, just like in E.T., the adults can't be trusted. The adults are like kind of working against the kids and they got to solve the problem on their own. The amount of like unique special effects and fantasy magical elements all kind of blurring together and creating this larger than life adventure that you can only see on the big screen and an incredibly engaging and talented cast of young actors all driving the thing. It's basically like Goonies meets E.T. meets Friday the 13th in this beautiful way. And it, of course, this movie kicked ass. Of course, this movie shook the foundations of cinema. And of course, a struggling new new line cinema ass production company would have their first hit on their hands. And so of course they would milk it into a bunch of sequels, even though hey. the original movie didn't quite, you know, it's kind of like saw. We, we, I was just about to covered. say, we literally it is the same story. Like Freddie built new line, saw built Lionsgate. And we wouldn't have these giant, you know, production houses without these particular movies. And I was also going to bring up ET as well, Jake. I was going to say, I, I think nightmare on Elm street is as important as ET is, to creating Stranger Things mm-hmm. is it, you know they're both yeah Stranger Things like has all both of those equally in their DNA and it, it really shows it's it's very very fun you know I think also before we get into the whole history and everything one other thing I'd say is just my my basic reaction is like in terms of first movies it it definitely you look back you're like oh wow this is like a lot slower than i thought it would be in a lot well, of ways like i mean it's certain it's points but 90 minutes in, it's like not, but not in a it's not a negative it's a building of tension mm-hmm. it, it, it way it's it's 
it's kind of like they just you're not you're not as in the dream world as you think you might be throughout the film, which I think they kind of are more aggressive with as the franchise moves on, right? But I really love it for that because so much of the tension is in the real world it has nothing to do with Freddy. Is the awful adults is the sleeplessness. Mm-hmm. And the way that everyone treats you. And more importantly, it's the uh, rotary telephone that makes out with you with a gross old man. I love that part so much. (laughs) I'm your boyfriend now. I'm your boyfriend now. I I love this movie. I love this franchise. I'm so glad we're finally doing it. So let's get into it. A Nightmare on Elm Street is a 1984 horror film written and directed by Wes Craven. Of course, the first of a franchise. uh, And uh, Wes Craven is where we start all of this, where, where it all begins. Mm-hmm. Uh, he started out as an academic teaching humanities at Clarkson College of Technology. He got his master's before that in philosophy and writing at Johns Hopkins University. While teaching, he did acquire a 16-millimeter camera to make short movies. He also attempted to break into writing with a novel he was shopping around. Craven said, but nothing was happening. So I moved to New York City and got a job as a messenger at a place that made movies. A friend, Sean Cunningham, who went on to do Friday the 13th, was given a small budget to produce a scary movie, and he told me to write something. I'd never seen a horror film in my life. That is a crazy fact to me from one Wes Craven. Uh, I'd fallen in love with Fellini. I told Sean I didn't know what to write. He said, you were raised as a fundamentalist. Pull that stuff out of your closet. That became Last House on the Left. My second film, The Hills Have Eyes, received good reviews. I got some TV movie of the week work and did Swamp Thing, but it didn't make it much money. After that, I couldn't get any work. No paycheck for three years. I lost my house. I had to borrow money from Sean to pay my taxes. Also, my first marriage had failed, and I was smoking a lot of grass, (laughs) then graduated to cocaine. Finally, I walked away from drugs, and I had this one idea, so I set off to write a script. Let's unpack that a little bit. First of all, I just realized something. I bet it's the same guy in Swamp Thing that's on fire. Oh, yeah. That runs into the swamp. That's got to be the same guy, right? Yeah, as yeah. Fred, as when Freddy catches on fire. It's like Jake was telling me before this. It's like the go-to guy. He's like the yeah, number Tony one. Tony Cicero. Uh, <laughs> is the, the, you need a set on fire guy in your production. Hit up Tony Cicero. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Just to get the Tony Cicero love out of the way, uh, it's a very uh, the scene where uh, where what why can't I remember the character? I know the her the actress's name is Heather Langenkamp. Uh, why can't I remember her actual name? I got you. I got you, Nancy Thompson. Uh, Nancy Thompson. Nancy Thompson. One of the best 
final girls in the history of horror films. Incredibly capable, incredibly witty, incredibly beautiful. Like, you believe her just, like, fuck it all attitude when she, like, realizes it's all down to her to stop Freddy. When uh, Nancy brings Freddy into the real world using the power of Balinese dream magic, she lights him on fire. Freddie uh, Robert England is then immediately replaced by a much shorter, stockier Freddie whose sweater seems to be full of insulating fireproof material now. And he is lit on fire and chases her up the stairs and then falls back down the stairs. And then he just kind of flumps over onto the staircase. That was him pulling an audible. He was just <laughs> supposed to like catch on fire and then like lie down at the bottom of the stairs. The lie down is the universal guy on fire stuntman term for I am done now please get the fire extinguisher I will die in 10 (laughs) seconds but he just went like I'm gonna go up the stairs and then I'm gonna go wackety schmackety down the stairs just because Tony Cicero is a goddamn professional who honors the craft of being on fire (laughs) while waving his hands around (laughs) that's so great dude fuck yeah Tony you rule dude I'm gonna buy you a drink next time I see you out out and about man you gotta be out there somewhere I'm gonna find his house and I'm gonna buy him a drink don't ask if he can get set on fire he hates when you ask him that (laughs) can you do it for free for me right now yeah I'm gonna do it for free for you at this this convention That's what I'm going to do. I'm 83 years old. Why would you? Yeah, you know, I like the look. I like the cut of your jib face. Give me that lighter. But also (laughs) from this quote from Craven, you know, you've got he started out totally as an academic. He started out totally as a writer, which he's an amazing prose writer, uh, turns out as well. And it's just so interesting. And then the other thing that we get from this, you know, fundamentalist, I think, I believe it's Baptist mm-hmm. upbringing, very fundamentalist Baptist upbringing. Extremely clean cut. You know, the it's amazing. I think one of the things that like gave him his spark in the horror genre is the fact that he had no like kind of basis on cinematic horror really yeah like he didn't grow up with the same like spooky ooks and night of the living dead experiences uh so when it came time to write a horror movie he just got to like draw on his own uniquely organic repressed fucked up ideas and just put them to uh film in a way that like it's untainted by a lot of classic or just like uh you know it's truly unique. It was his unique horrors uh, that made it to the screen and kind of injected some new nightmares into our collective unconscious. Well, it wasn't just his personal experiences. This new script he wanted to write was actually based on an article that he read in the LA Times. It centered around a family that escaped the killing fields in Cambodia, a genocide that resulted in the deaths of a million people. Craven said, things were fine, and then suddenly the young son was having very disturbing nightmares. He told his parents he was afraid that if he slept, the thing chased him, uh, the thing chasing him would get him. So he tried to stay awake for days at a time. When he finally fell asleep, his parents thought the crisis was over. Then they heard screams in the middle of the night. By the time they got to him, he was dead. He died in the middle of a nightmare. He was a youngster having a vision of a horror that everyone older was denying. That became the central line of A Nightmare on Elm Street. And apparently it wasn't just one instance. There were a few similar articles in the times about this phenomenon medical authorities referred to as asian death syndrome and there was this really phoning it in with that one <laughs> yeah by the way for sure <laughs> couldn't come up with anything cool like dreamscape you know yeah dream killer killings 
Um, that's also phoning it in. But uh, the monster itself uh, came from Craven's childhood. He saw an elderly man walking just outside his house who stopped to look at Craven, which startled him. Then the man walked away. Wes Craven said, in a sense, Freddy stands for the worst of parenthood and adulthood. The dirty old man, the nasty father, and the adult who wants children to die rather than help them prosper. He's the boogeyman and the worst fear of children, the adult that's out to get them. He's a very primal figure, sort of like Kronos devouring his children, that evil, twisted, perverted father figure that wants to destroy and is able to get them at their most vulnerable moment, which is when they sleep. And for the name, he went with his his child. Childhood bully's name, Fred Krueger. A similar character uh, named Krug or Krug in uh, Last House on the Left yes. also was a reference to that same bully. Interesting in the um, in the 2010 documentary Never Sleep Again, Craven claims that the old man in the window actually like came back to poke his head through the window just to fuck with him, mm. and claimed that just that innate feeling of like sometimes adults do you just want to fuck with kids for the sake of like messing with them is very key to the Freddy character. That's why Freddy relishes the chase, relishes the scare, relishes the kill more so than like a lot of other uh, horror icons. And like, it is the same as just like doing a dumb joke with your nephew or something being like, knock, knock, who's there? Boo. Yeah. Or something dumb. Sorry to anybody in the uh, audience listening right now that just shat themselves <laughs> from that very scary uncle shenanigan I did. It's okay. It's okay. You can get clean pants. <laughs> and uh, he also did talk about like the the perverted adult. Originally, Freddie was to be not just a child killer, but a child molester. They had him tone that down in the script when they went to the finale, but they did uh, uh, when they went to the shooting, by the time they got to the shooting script, but eventually they they get it back in there eventually. Don't worry, guys. It is, I remember specifically watching the movie and the mom is like, well, he was a child murderer. And I was like, that's not a thing. <laughs> that's not like we all know the horrible phenomenon of the neighborhood child murderer. Like, no, that's but apparently it was directly because of the McMartin preschool satanic panic mm-hmm. was all over the news while like uh, they were pr- in getting into production that forced that change, which is incredibly, uh, you know, uh, last podcast did a whole series on that. Uh, All of it was, you know, no convictions came out of that. It was part of just this immense, uh, this immense, just, uh, yeah, panic, this uh, cultural scare that was happening uh, thanks to Dungeons and Dragons and uh, Reaganism. Uh, But that was enough for Freddy Krueger to go from perverted old man to, Guy who just loves to throw kids into furnaces. <laughs> I, you know, sometimes you hit me on a certain Tuesday. I might have kind of have the same inkling. I don't know. He read it. He also, Wes Craven read in an article that the colors red and green were the most clashing colors to the human eye. So that's where they got the striped sweater. He also wanted to break from current trends in the slasher genre by not having Freddy have a traditional mask per se, instead going with a severely burned face so that Freddy could be more verbal. He went with a glove with blades on the fingers in order to break away from the Jasons and Michaels as well, who were wielding machetes and knives and things of that nature. He wanted to kind of give it a little bit more of a, a little more riz, a little more drip. In the original script, Craven had originally just written like animal-like claws or fingernails. 
And it was kind of vague on what that was supposed to mean. And it was the effects director, Jim Doyle, to kind of elaborate on what that meant. And he, after doing some uh, drawings, kind of landed on the leather glove with uh, brass fittings and razor blades that became the iconic weapon of Freddy Krueger. Another thing in the early stages of writing that uh, I found really fascinating, it was Wes Craven's daughter's that like really had a lot of influence on the final picture. Uh, it was in, again, in the uh, Never Sleep Again documentary, Craven talked about how, why did uh, his daughter was like, why do the girls always fall down in your movies? Uh, referencing stuff like Swamp Thing and Hills Have Eyes, where, you know, the lit girl would always just like fall over mid chase just so that the villain could come back and get her. And that was when, Nancy uh, kind of became more fleshed out as this athletic, smart, capable, savvy Mm. person that was willing to go above and beyond than just like give in to the horror and give in to what the adults around her were saying. So Craven shops his script all over Hollywood and every studio rejects him until he meets Robert Shea. Bob Shea initially wanted to be a director, but wasn't making enough waves and ended up working at the Museum of Modern Art in the film Stills Archive. And at a party, a dude told him, I'm sure they were passed around, J-Bones eating ice cream cones, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Doing their normal party boy things. And that, and while doing those things, a guy told him there was a big market at the time in distributing films on college campuses. And he understood distribution. His father was in the wholesale grocery business. So Bob then starts up New Line Cinema in a rent-controlled apartment on 2nd Avenue. Their first big hit was redistributing Reefer Madness on college campuses. And yes, I was one of the douchebags who had that framed poster uh. in his... Framed, but with that shitty plastic framing Mm -hmm. that you use to kind of frame a poster, Mm -hmm. but not really frame a poster. Yep, I had it on my wall in my college apartment, and this earns him enough profit to move on to production. Uh, Reefer Madness, uh, if you don't know, uh, old kind of PSA movie Mm -hmm. from the, what, the 50s or even before that. 1936. Damn, about the dangers of smoking weed. It's it's fun-ish. It's, you know, it's as clunky and slow as one of those movies might be. But yes, people do smoke the evil uh, weed uh, and uh, end up going insane. And that's always fun in college. Jack Shoulder, director of the sequel, said, uh, of the the second Nightmare on Elm Street, No, not the sequel to Reaper Madness. Not the sequel to Reaper Madness. (laughs) Reaper Madness 2. Yikes, I believe is the subtitle. Uh, Jack Shoulder, director of the sequel, said, Bob was the first guy to distribute John Waters, the first to distribute Werner Herzog, but he always felt like an outsider, and that drove him. So with Freddy, uh, Wes Craven said, I couldn't find an actor to play Freddy Krueger with the sense of ferocity I was seeking. Everyone was too quiet, too compassionate towards children. Then Robert England auditioned. Robert England began acting at the age of 12 and initially performed in regional theater for a handful of years before moving over to the film world. His first film and television roles were in Nothing Crazy. He initially was typecast as the nerdy guy, actually, which is fun to fun to think about. He ended up playing an ad- a, quote, adorable curly-haired alien in the miniseries V on NBC. <laughs> and according to him, this was going to be his big break. It was greenlit for a full-on series. Uh, it was it kind of he was like, all right, we've made it. We've got we've got a I'm a, I'm a hit character on what's going to hopefully be a hit TV show. And England said. During the hiatus, the only job I auditioned for that fit my schedule was Nightmare on Elm Street. That's the real reason I said yes. 
Uh, England also said, driving over to the audition, I licked my finger and put it in the ashtray of my Datsun Roadster. That's an old theater trick. Ash gives you a nice shadow under the eyes. So I dabbed a little there, greased my, my hair back, and went in. I looked strange. And I think that regional theater upbringing really is what feeds the Freddy characters. Freddy is like a kind of a classic theater character. He's playing to the back of the room. He's 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 incredibly expressive with his body and and uh and and oh, his yeah. range of vocal t- talents uh, as well. It's it's very like old school in a lot of ways his performance. There's um <laughs> he claims also that he uh when he slicked back his hair, he didn't have any like uh, hair gel, so he just reached into the dipstick of his car and got like motor oil and put that in on his head. Nice. Uh, he also claims that he uh, got uh, Mark Hamill the audition in Star Wars. So like, yeah. And Mark Hamill has flatly denied that. So <laughs> I who didn't. Knows? I did you not know. include it in my notes. It seemed insane. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Robert England has definitely a case of a thing I'd like to call has done conventions for forty years and therefore has just like built a mythology of interesting, fun stories so uh, entwined with outright lies that it's you, you got to take everything he says with a little grain of salt. But um, he does. Oh no, he talks about how like the. That it was the thing that he did. He didn't even read lines. He just did like spooky poses at his audition. Mm -hmm. And that was enough for them to be like, all right. He claims getting influenced by uh, James Cagney and like giving Freddie kind of a confident wide gangster stance. He claims that he uh, would always carry the glove at like kind of like a cowboy would reach for his uh, his, you know, the big iron on his hip. And if you watch the movie in a lot of stills, Freddie is just kind of leaned in with the arm like yeah. kind of there as a weapon ready to draw. <laughs> they actually tried to recast Freddie in Nightmare on Elm Street 2. And within the first like couple of days of shooting, the guy they got was so like just kind of a lumbering Frankenstein kind of monster actor that they kind of were like, fuck, we got to get we got to get Robert back. So like his physicality is all is super important for the character. Very of much Freddy so. Yeah. And his unique kind of evil styling. Yeah. He also says my Freddy was inspired by Klaus Kinski's Nosferatu, but also by all the monsters that Lon Chaney created. The The legs being far apart is James Cagney. Uh, he said that it is a pose that signifies sheer power. And uh, also people wonder why Freddy has this strange posture with his right shoulder slouched. But it was because that claw was so heavy, it weighed me down. Oh. But I like the way it made me look like a cowboy drawing a gun. Oh, yeah. Yeah, totally, right? Wes Craven uh, had this to say about uh, his, you know, choosing England. I wanted somebody who was an actor rather than a stuntman, somebody who could convey a sense of evil and who was very enthusiastic about getting to an evil state. You really have to get malicious and malevolent, and a lot of actors just don't want to get there. Their heart isn't in it. You have to find somebody who is comfortable with that idea and isn't threatened by it. He knows it isn't him, but can go there. Robert England filled the bill after we found him quite late in casting. His delight with it is that he had been playing nebbishes and good guys and was looking forward to playing somebody older 
and evil. And he even uh, even Robert Eaglet says Freddie will come out while he's like stuck in traffic and <laughs> in L.A. You know, he'll just start screaming at the other cars, kind of as Freddie. Like Freddie's like always kind of in there with right him. Wait, bitch. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and you can see that happening too. And, and you know, it's a real delight for him this character that he's gotten to be for so many years. I think he just retired the character. I believe. Oh yeah, he claimed uh, that he found the voice uh, getting annoyed with his makeup artist, like during the testing. Yes, phase. David Miller. England said, "I sat in the barber's chair in David Miller's makeup shop, hours and hours of trial and error. While David poked at me with his crusty brushes, I grew more and more profane. <laughs> That's how I started to find the voice of Freddie." So it's yeah, it's honestly Freddie. Freddie's attitude, it's like a weird mix of just like, like, ah, I'm going to get you nighty night. I'm your boyfriend. Uh." Yeah. And then, uh, but then like when he loses it, he's just, he's just annoyed. He's just like, oh, come on. (laughs) Oh, hey, stop it. Yeah, he kind of has much more of a, obviously, if you can see his face and he can talk more, he has a much more like human quality, hilariously enough, than like a Michael or a Jason. But, and and so, and he's like more vulnerable. I feel like he's more prone to getting you know, the shit kicked out of him in, in a mm-hmm. in a Nightmare on Elm Street. You know what I mean? Or whatever. Like, And then he'll come back, though. He'll just keep coming back. I mean, back. there's a whole Home Alone sequence yeah. that is really I funny. love how it gets Home alone at the end of Nightmare on Elm Street, the first film. It is so fun that they do that. Uh, also, another uh, fun little factoid about David Miller. He was the makeup artist uh, before this on Swamp Thing. Mm-hmm. And that's how we ended up working with Wes Craven. And also, Michael Jackson's Thriller music video, oh. which I think you could definitely see the one-to-one on that zombie makeup uh, and Freddy's makeup. I Yeah, Freddy, always terrifying. He's always like kind of moist. Mm-hmm. It's just like the blood and the pus coming from the, from the uh, burns. Uh, burns and everything. You know, it, it just... Um, it's just such a great character in look and action and such a standout. Again, I think that's really what is fun about him, you know, just such a total, like, fun, extreme standout in comparison to the more stoic slasher villain uh, that was uh, really all the rage back then. And even now, you know, I mean, I mean, shit, even Ghostface in the more, in the more modern era is still a little more like, has a little bit of Freddy's like flailing mm-hmm. and stuff and like chaotic energy, but still a mask, you know, total like this very, you see kind of, you see in it what you want to see, but it doesn't have this defined personality. No, in a modern, if they did a modern, uh, and I'm not talking about the Jackie Earl Haley uh, version. They did a modern uh, Nightmare Before Christmas. Uh, wow, I'm sorry, Nightmare on Elm Street. Also covered that. Sorry, <laughs> I got Halloween on the brain. I guess if they did a modern Nightmare on Elm Street, there'd just be like entire things where we're like, "I'm a representation of of a trauma, bitch." <laughs> like, you never got to say goodbye to your dad when he had cancer, bitch. Like, just, just like <laughs> it'd be too weird. It'd be too on the nose. They don't make it like this no more. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. 
Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Well, let's talk about the kids. You already mentioned Heather uh, Langenkamp played the lead, Nancy Thompson. Uh, She was a total newbie to Hollywood. She decided to take a year off from college at the age of 18 to try out acting. She'd only done... Her dad gave her $5,000. Wow. Sent her from Tulsa and was like... If you can make like see if you can make this last before you actually like get on your feet. And that was his like if you're going to go for it, go, go for, for it, it now. Then. That's awesome. Yeah. And she was almost at the end of her rope when she got the role. Yeah, she'd only done some small work before this like commercials, made for TV movies, and they wanted someone who felt small town, who wasn't a big Hollywood actor. Uh, another person who wasn't a big Hollywood actor at this time that uh the whole world got introduced to, Johnny Depp as Glenn Lance, the teen heartthrob before we get to Johnny Depp, uh, Camp had this to say about Nancy. Nowadays in films, there's a lot of care about presenting the lead female in a way that will turn guys on. With Nancy, it was the opposite. That's why people love Nancy so much. She looks like an average teenager. She has ugly hair. She's wearing a pair of boys' jeans. All of her clothes are kind of pink. Like, who wears pink? Everything about her is just not right. Wes Craven said... I'm sorry, she is a breathtakingly beautiful woman. I know. What is she talking about? I don't know what she's talking about. But... Uh, <laughs> Uh, I do like that she was, you know, definitely, yeah, but she definitely still was like a little more, you know, a little more boyish in her, in her clothing and stuff like that, for sure. No, she was, yeah, there was a smidge of tomboy. She, they think, I think in the original script, it was like unexceptional, yet athletic and graceful or something like that. Right, Not like the other girls, but also don't worry. Still a smoke show. Arm muscles the size of basketballs, <laughs> I believe, was in there. No, that's what uh, they described Glenn as. <laughs> yes. And Johnny Depp was not that at all. Yeah, so another unknown that was first introduced to the world in this movie, Johnny Depp is Glenn Lance. Wes Craven said, the actor who played the coroner came to me and said, I have a friend who's in town. His name's Johnny Depp. He's in a band and he's interested in getting into movies. Is this how Hollywood worked back then? Now it's different. It's a nightmare. You know what I mean? It's just a crap. Mm-hmm. Now you just, hey, I know this. This kid named Johnny Depp. He says he wants to act. Put him in your picture. Um, He gave me Johnny's headshot. I read with Johnny and I remember his fingers were yellow from constantly smoking unfiltered cigarettes. And he was greasy and pale and sickly. My 14-year-old daughter was in from New York with a friend. I took the headshots of the actors I was considering for the role of Heather's boyfriend, Glenn. I put them out on the kitchen table and asked the girls, who would you pick? They immediately pointed at Johnny. I said, are you serious? He looked like he needed a bath. They both said, he's beautiful. <laughs> so funny. Like, I love that they tell and He's just like so disturbed. The da- I bet Wes yeah. too was like, oh, man, you're going to end up dating a bunch of assholes, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> so funny the timothy chalamet of 1984 yeah exactly that's really what he is yeah timothy chalamet, i mean timothy chalamet is the johnny depp of you know now no, but, yeah. uh but anyways the movie is shot in 32 days in the la area easy easy, easy. Breezy. initial budget of seven hundred thousand dollars it grew to 1.1 million over time so again very much in line with uh what our ep- our saw episode same budget oh, i mean no. years apart but yeah same, similar oh, budget. no funding was a constant constant problem well, sure, for sure. this for this production uh, it was, yeah, oh God, no. Like, th- there were weeks where the entire crew just like 
had to work without funding because something somebody would pull out, someone would go, you know, they would just run out of money. And it was up to Robert Shea and his assistant to just be like, hey, guys, so um, fun, fun thing. Uh, you're not getting paid. Please don't leave. And, uh, you know, the group of the group that was there was just like really just believed in the project enough. And for a lot of them had nowhere else to go. Uh, there was a moment where uh, Langenkamp cut her foot on a piece of glass and uh, had to go to the hospital. And Shay was like, oh, come on. It's not that bad. Like, how about you do a couple more uh, setups and then we'll take you to the hospital? Just because <laughs> like time and money was so just like rapidly depleting from the get-go. Yeah, Bob Shea said half the funding came from a Yugoslavian guy who had a girlfriend he wanted in movies. <laughs> so that gives you a good indication of what they were dealing with. Uh, Sean Cunningham of Friday the 13th fame helped as a head of the second unit crew during the shoot. He also worked with Craven on his first break into Hollywood, The Last House on the Left. So they were always kind of in it together, which is kind of cool to know because it seemed like this big rivalry, you know, mm -hmm. Freddy versus Jason. And the fact that they kind of always had been working together is very, very cool. 500 gallons of fake blood were used during the filming. Mm hmm. It's a good little factoid. Uh, to cut costs, because they were always, as we said, they were always dealing with this budget issue, they reused the revolving room for both Tina's death as well as for the blood geyser sequence. Uh, Wes Craven said, that was a real puzzle to construct. They bolted two racing car seats to the wall, one for the cinematographer and one for myself, and we were in five-point harnesses. For Johnny's scene, 300 gallons of blood had to come out of his bed. I wanted uh, the grips to rotate the room slowly so blood would run down the walls, but the room took off in an enormous spin from the sudden shift of weight and blood went everywhere. It hit every light and blew every fuse. They assumed I was dead by the time it was done. <laughs> oh no, you can see in the final movie that uh, unbroken geyser of blood is flowing directly over a live lighting fixture yeah. that definitely was not wired to protect the person uh, dumping the blood. So yeah, somebody got like shocked standing over that on the roof of that room or the floor that it was upside down to be the roof of the room. Like, no, this was, this was not OSHA compliant by any means. Yeah. And you know, it's definitely crazy to me that I couldn't figure out, like knowing what I know now that it was the room upside down with the blood flowing out. And then they just put it right side up. Like, I can't believe I couldn't. What did you wait? What you, really? What do you mean? I mean, as soon as they had the uh, sequence where it, the first girl, the girl that you think is going to be the hero, the friend, and then she uh, also dies in the most horrific way possible, and she's up on the ceiling. That's the only way you can do that effect is a big rotating. Room. I know, but I, I just, I didn't even think about it, and it just looks cool to me. Mm. I know exactly. I'm an idiot. I'm saying I'm an idiot. I couldn't believe. It. I was like, how did I not realize that this is what this is? It'd been a long time since I'd seen it, but it just does look very trippy when, uh, when you, you, uh, you know, when you see it the first time. I don't know. Either way, um, this was very much influenced, inspired by uh, Stanley Kubrick's The Shining blood elevator sequence. Mm -hmm. Very much so. They went, They were kind of working to uh, recreate a similar kind of look. But I know, yeah, it's like very obvious. Well, there's a lot of tech stuff that I don't know if I... I mean, pulling the mom through the door always looked ridiculous. Yeah. This time, the mom in bed the mom's death in bed was so insane like cheesy it looks like a 
carnival haunted house like animatronic it is so bad that one is that one's a real and then other things look amazing like when he rips his face off and he's got Mm. the bloody skeleton face and he's like freaking out of like the long arm silhouette thing like it's it's a real mishmash of like incredible looking effects and the most thrown together like hack job effects it's like really wild the um story behind the bad uh the mom getting sucked through the window was apparently there was a moment of like make or break for the production where they were going to do a screening for Paramount Pictures. I think this was covered in the uh, movies that made us on Netflix. It was that or the uh, Never Sleep Again documentary from 2010. But Robert Shea had like hyped up the movie after uh, they had filmed like six different versions of that like little ending thing, the only thing that was in the original script was like it then pans to uh, the little girls singing the jump rope song as like Nancy sees her friends again on a foggy morning. Yeah. We don't know whether the dream is over or if it never happened. Yeah. Here's here's actually the quote on that. I felt that the film should end when Nancy turns her back on Freddie and his violence. That's the the one thing that kills him. And then uh, he said, the original ending of the script has Nancy come out the door. It's an unusually cloudy and foggy day. Car pulls up with her dead friends in it. Uh, She's startled. She goes out and gets in the car, wondering what the hell is going on. And they drive off into the fog with the mother left standing on the doorstep. And that's it. It was very brief and suggestive that maybe life is sort of dreamlike, too. And that's how it was initially supposed to end. But they brought in the fucking wacky car. They brought in Robert England. He's like, oh, is he driving the car? No, Johnny Depp's driving the car. Do the the car now has claws? Like they just like were throwing spaghetti at the wall. And one of those things that they were just doing just to like get one last pop in was the mom getting sucked in. They did it quick and dirty. You know, on the spot with the mannequin. But Robert Shea, for some reason, while he was like trying to talk up the movie to the head of Paramount, was like, oh, and there's this great thing at the end. It's like a real like uh, last minute pop. It's like Carrie. You're going to love it. You know, the mom gets sucked in through a window. It's an amazing effect. And at the Paramount screening, they realized they hadn't actually talked to the editor and told him to use that ending. So I believe it's Rick Shane was the editor in the screening room is like getting his assistants to bring in cans of film. He's trying to find the footage and splice it in real time. Robert Shea stops the movie at a certain point and just says, hey, we'll be right back. For 20 minutes, everybody's just sitting in silence. And then they finally start the movie back up again, all for this incredibly cringy shot. And obviously, uh, Paramount did not choose to distribute the movie after that. I mean, yeah, I you know, but I will say, yes, incredibly cringy shot, but it has this carnival. Again, I had to use the carnival haunted house uh, analogy, but it has this whoa, like silly fun. It's like you kind of need it. It's the whole movie is really like the tone of the whole movie is very despairing. It's a really good horror movie in that way. It's like just the whole time it's, it's sleeplessness and awful parents. And, you know, and then of course everything with Freddie is upsetting. And to just have this finale, that's just like the, the car is Freddie. Ah! And, ah! Like it almost like washes it all away and makes you excited for the next one immediately. Yeah. Like I literally, as soon as the movie ended, it popped up. You know, I watched it on Max, by the way. If, if you have a, they've got them all on Max. 
I immediately considered clicking on the next movie, like because the next movie part popped two. up, part two. I, I just because it's such, even though it was kind of like such a disparaging like movie watching experience in certain ways, it's just it's it's a it's a you know not sleeping for days as a teenager with alcoholic parents is a bummer. But uh, it just that pop is what made me be like more, give me more. So it did work. Yeah, yeah, and it needed to be a big schlocky franchise. I totally get Wes Craven wanting to end it like artistically, but I just think it was so fun. No, I honestly think this would be if they had ended it, this would be like the Goonies, like E.T., like uh, Back to the Future, even like maybe if they had ended it at Dream Warriors, like the way that it really does perfectly like marry the 80s blockbuster with the slasher movie, all with like this indie micro budget i find so compelling yeah and the fact that it did become this bloated mutated funko popified thing is really the thing that kept me away for so long yeah but i i love it for that freddie it's like i want to see freddie krueger with slimer <laughs> eating popcorn you know what i mean like it's just that that it's it's got that theme park aesthetic Ooh, to it that i love hold on, so hold much on. hear me out Deady Player One, the all horror meta f- cash oh out. Oh my movie. god, that would be fun! <laughs> all the horror monsters come out. It's like, yeah, like every, yeah, yeah. Just write it. Just go ahead. Freddy and get that versus out. Godzilla versus King Kong versus just, Jason versus all, yeah, Dracula. They all come out, or they're all in this realm. You have to like to f- battle them all. That would be pretty fun. And the more you know about horror and film yeah. history, the better equipped you'll be to solve the many puzzles to get the th- millions of dollars that you need. Yeah, I could see it so hard. Um, I have some more stuff, definitely, though, with the filming uh, before we get to the release and everything. Yeah, I just want one more note. The, uh, the carnival quality that you're talking about, I feel like that is one of the what kind of it's a testament to Wes Craven as a filmmaker because. The narcoleptic, like you don't know in any given shot whether you are in the dream world or not, is actually really great for keeping the audience on their toes. Totally. What would be an ordinary scene where you're just kind of like, you know, okay, it's the exposition dump, like, oh, no one believes her. I get it. And then boom, like the hall monitor is wearing Freddie's sweater. It's just like, where's your hall pass? Yes. That's so great. And it uses the weaknesses of the production, the weaknesses of the script to just get as much cool, interesting shit down. And in the universe of the movie, that, uh, that, that weird rhythm plays into what's happening in the minds of our characters. It's fantastic. Yeah. And like, I think we all can resonate with the, the dread of realizing you're in a bad dream, Mm -hmm. you know, like the, just the sheer, like horrible feeling of, being like, oh man, and there's just like no way out of this. Mm. Like, there's just no way. And then the magic of being able to, everyone's like wanted to the, love the idea of like bringing something from the dream world into the real world, right? Mm. Like, these are all conceits. And it really tapped into for me in a lot of ways of like sleep deprivation as a teenager. Cause like, I don't know about you, but I, we definitely, or, or even maybe preteen, you, you start doing these, you like go on a sleepover and you try to see how late you can stay up. <laughs> and like, no, sleep. I was I was that fucking kid yeah, that went that to sleep kid. right away and just like I mean nobody ever like put my hand in a cup of warm water or nothing. Right. But I was always like 
Oh, I should have stayed up, but I was still the passed out kid. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, there was a lot of that culture around, you know, I, I, the, sleep is such an interesting thing when you're a kid because you don't really re- recognize how important it is. It's just this thing you have to do. And, uh, you know, I, I just remember that being so prevalent <laughs> in my childhood. Like I've talked about this, like a lot of my issues with depression, something like that came, you know, were, were hand in hand with sleeplessness, mm-hmm. right? Like that's more what I see is depression. Like other people, they just sleep all day and that's depression. I've, I've had that. I had that depression later in life mm-hmm. for, for like a year. But, uh, as a kid, when I got really depressed, I couldn't sleep and it just terrorized me. And so like sleep is scary to me, mm-hmm. you know, inherently, right? As a thing that, you know, when you don't get it, it just, it can really wreak havoc on your life. So yeah, all that stuff's great. For the uh, bathroom scene, they built a set over a full-on swimming pool. Langenkamp said, the bath sequence was crazy too. It was eight feet deep. And as I floated on the surface, the sound effects guy was below me in a scuba suit. Wes would tap on the side when he wanted him to raise Freddy's claws between my legs. To this day, I find it scary to take a bath, which I think is amazing. The actor herself is uh, terrified. For the melting staircase, I kind of mentioned this before. They use pancake mix. Langenkamp did refer to it though as uh, mushroom soup and said the set absolutely stank. I think it's pancake mix, though. But uh, some maybe have I'm wrong. said oatmeal. Others have said uh, mushroom soup. Uh, Jim Doyle, the effects producer who has given his time to both of the documentaries I watched, says that it is bisquick left to sit out for a while and evaporate a little to thicken up. Wes Craven hated this whole idea. This was not in his script, but oh, it really? was... I think it's a really effective... I think it really is a great like translation of a nightmare thing, though. No, this was you know? Robert Shea, because this was his recurring nightmare thing, is exactly what you described. The running as if you were being laden with something, that like horrifying physical feeling of being in a nightmare. Shea pushed hard for it, and uh, when the time came, Wes Craven let him direct that scene because he wanted no part of it. Another uh, scene was Freddy walking through the prison bars. This was done in an interesting way, according to Wes Craven. We took triangulations of the camera so we knew exactly the height of it from the floor and the angle towards the point where the killer was going to walk through. We put the camera again at the exact height and walked the actor through that space. Then those two images were married and a rotoscope artist went through and matted out the bars so it appeared they were going straight through his body. So again, I love this kind of a reminiscent of the Saul episode, a lot of interesting workarounds, a lot of like just really, you know, cheapo, mm-hmm. like constructed ways to do things. I don't think they always hit, you know, for sure. But there's something about the, again, the campiness mm-hmm. that almost it's like it just veers the horror genre car. Surreal. The word you are looking for is the surreal, the uncanny. Not necessarily outright horror, but the just really getting your brain to like all of a sudden question the reality it's in. You know, the uh, we keep referencing it, but the mom window sucked. <laughs> I don't know why that's where my mind went. It's, it's corny, but the arms is just literally some like tube stuffed with cotton being held up on fishing wire. Yeah. But that's great. Yeah, but that works. So again, even when it's not going for outright blood and guts and murder and terror, you're still just like, I, I'm, I'm off balance by what I am seeing. I don't know 
what the rules are anymore. And that is its own unique kind of dread. It's stitched together. It's very stitched together. And uh, it almost uh, wouldn't work. But Robert England's performance, the incredible makeup work for the crea- and and just the whole aesthetic of Freddy being so realized and so perfect. And then like they just go for a lot of shit and sometimes like the bloody body bag at the school is so mm-hmm. fucking creepy and good and like works so well and at you know um whereas yeah exactly like the mom <laughs> in the bed the actress claims to have hated uh doing those scenes apparently the human brain just really does not want to be in a zipped up body I bet. Bag. Yeah, very, very. It really just is like screaming at you. Please get out of this. You do not belong in this. It translates really well. The blood pouring out of the bed, I think, works really well. Mm-hmm. You know, as obvious as the effect might be to anyone but me who was high. Okay, I was high in college. All right, I didn't think about it. I just was like, whoa, it sh- they get it to shoot up. Like, I just, you know what I mean? I don't know how it, how things work. I'm a doldrum, Jake. A, a, a moron, a fool. You know what I mean? I should be playing like a... Well, like a wooden flute on a hill right now in any other time, you know, in, in the old days, right? And then people would throw pennies at me. I mean, this is really what I should... I mean, people throw pennies at you now. I saw... Yeah, I see. Yeah, it was a, a lot rough of people, set yeah, in, San in San Diego. Yeah, I was dodging <laughs> fucking half dollars. Yeah, that was insane. Yeah, I had to do the Andy Kaufman <laughs> thing and uh, come out in a full SWAT <laughs> uniform. It was so aggressive. But yeah, I, it just... Uh, it, it really barely fucking works but it just so works. It really reminds me of so much of Saw. Yeah, uh, also, uh, the score shout-outs is such a fun, like, synthy score. Oh, God. Uh, done by Charles Bernstein. He did a decent amount of horror in the 80s, including Cujo and April Fool's Day. Can I... This is in the Wikipedia article, and uh, the Wikipedia article cites the DVD commentary, so, I, so it seems like it might be real, but I didn't hear it myself. But Wes Craven claims that while he was coming up with the script and trying to, like, nail the aesthetic of the movie that he wanted to make, it was Gary Wright's Dreamweaver that really cemented what the movie was going to be in his mind. If you remember from Wayne's World, you know, the song, Dreamweaver, I can't believe you can get me through the night. If you listen to the song, it starts out with one of the most menacing synth riffs I've ever heard. April, if you can, just play that for a second. And so apparently Wes Craven, like, listened to that about the Dreamweaver getting you through the night with the, like, evil synth music was like, that's the movie. I got it now. And I find that to be such a weird point of inspiration for all of this. <laughs> uh, another little note about the music. Freddie's theme was already in the script, of course. Uh, it is based on One, Two, Buckle My Shoe. Mm-hmm. One, two, Freddie's coming for you. And by the way, I tried to sing it to Lexa last night and she was like, don't <laughs> do it. Which is why I love how effective it is on Lexi. Three, four, better lock your door. Five, six, grab your crucifix. Seven, eight, better stay up late. Such a good running theme. Every time you hear it, you know Freddy's coming. It's so such a smart thing to throw in there. One of the girls who sings it in the movie is Bob Shea's daughter, by the way, who was 14 at the time. I also believe Bob Shea is the uh is like a TV anchor 
in at one point in the film, and I think the voice of a radio host. I know in two he plays a leather daddy bartender, <laughs> so that's fun. That's awesome. The movie ends up releasing in the U.S. in November of 1984. I love this quote from Mimi Craven. It's so funny. It's really dated, and just go with me on this. It is her words, not mine. Uh, Mimi Craven, Wes's wife. The first time Wes and I saw the movie with a real audience was in New York. It was a very urban crowd. They were screaming at the screen, don't go in there, you stupid white woman. (laughs) We walked out going, okay, this is good. (laughs) Yeah, And it really did work. It worked with so many different crowds, and it really is such a fun conceit and character for the slasher film audience. The movie ends up raking in over $25 million domestically and over $57 million worldwide. New Line is referred to as the house that Freddie built. Mm -hmm. Uh, Wes Craven had no intention to make any sequels at the time, by the way. Craven said, I received no money from the sequels, no money from merchandising. That didn't come until 10 years later when Bob called me and said, you've been complaining about this and that. We'd like you to make one more Freddie film, even though we killed him off in the last sequel. So what the hell? I took the meeting and they offered me a cut of the merchandising and sequels retroactively. Craven then bought a house and referred to it as the house that Freddy built. So I'm, I'm really, that's really cool. Honestly, New Line didn't have to do that. It's really cool that they uh, made good on kind of fucking him over with all that stuff. But also he, again, just like the Saw guys, I can't believe he didn't make another one until New Nightmare. Well, of course. So the amount of like, begging and borrowing and leveraging that Robert Shea had to do. Like he mortgaged his entire life behind this movie. Uh, And so when the movie was a success, almost none of it went back to him. Mm. So that's why Nightmare on Elm Street 2 was just so quickly slapped together. Like the script was done by someone who worked in like the New Line mailroom. Like they just got, you know, they weren't even going to pay Robert England at first. Like they just needed to keep the money, like to... To actually earn back the money from making the first Nightmare, they had to make the sequel and then Dream Warriors. And then from there, like, New Line pretty much is responsible for my childhood. Like, fucking House Party, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, The Mask, Dumb and Dumber, Mortal Kombat, Austin Powers, Blade, The Lord of the Rings trilogy, Harold and Kumar. Like, it's fucking insane that all of the, you know, all the, I don't associate the New Line logo with the little film strip askew i never associated it with friday the 13th and now knowing that like none of these movies would have been possible if not for this crazy gambit they took on this movie Mm -hmm. i find fascinating yeah absolutely uh i've got a few final quotes before we wrap this thing up anything else you wanted to mention uh in the making of a nightmare on elm street before we close this out dream warriors is so fucking good yeah dream warriors rules the second one rules as well i I, if i were to suggest you know i think you kind of already know this from what i've been saying before but freddy one two three and then new nightmare i think are my like definite go-tos in terms of uh, watch the whole franchise there's always good kills in all of them i think the one he was talking about the one the the last one but where they kill freddy off freddy's dead the final nightmare sucks ass dream child's whatever yeah i mean they're all i mean really really one through three are the are the goods and then new nightmare is great. The and, Nintendo and game, versus Jason, the Nintendo game, not great. <laughs> Freddy's nightmares, the s- television series that aired for two seasons. Uh, if you want to see the world's lowest budget version of an origin story, you can watch the pilot episode of that. But uh, yeah, no, it's, 
God, it, I feel so silly that it took me this long to engage with this franchise because I was so charmed mm-hmm. by this first movie. Yeah, it's a wonderful combo, wonderful melting pot of like all things 80s culture. Well, here's my final quotes for you guys. Uh, first one from Robert England. After Freddy hit, it took me a while to realize how big it was. I was in New York to sign autographs at a science fiction convention. It was me and William Shatner, and my line was out the door and down the avenue. After that, I went along for the ride. I'm happy I did, or I might have ended up doing theater in Santa Clarita. Uh, he definitely uh, really embraces the character. I think he really has enjoyed it from everything I've read. And uh, it's very funny that the science fiction convention analogy, because as you said earlier, he kind of became like a convention king. Yeah. Langenkamp said, Nightmare is a feminist movie, but I look at it as more of a youth power film. People love that she's a girl, but Nancy doesn't think of herself as a girl. She's just like, I need to save my friends. And Wes Craven said, the notion of the screenplay is that the sins of the parents are visited upon the children. But the fact that each child is not necessarily stuck with their lot is still there. And it is funny. It's like really is the whole movie you can really look at as a breaking of cycles of trauma. Mm. You know, because it really is the parents who who established all of this awful stuff. Took the law into their own hands, created the curse of Freddy Krueger, and uh, you know, and then and then all were clearly like became addicts and stuff like that because of it. And and then the the kids are just trying to pick up the pieces, and only through exploring what happened to their parents and their parents' past are they able to move forward and break the curse. Essentially, no, no, it's uh, uh, canonically it's because the demon puppets. Gave him magic powers because he was the bastard son of a hundred maniacs. Right. I forgot about something. that. And they didn't. And his bones. Then the dog pissed on the bone. Which is. A, and that's how the band 10,000 Maniacs were formed. <laughs> it was actually formed by. I know this is meta, but it was formed by the real Freddy Krueger that uh, that, ex- that Wes Craven was inspired by. Well, we'll get into that in the next episode. Uh, All right. Thanks so much, everybody, for joining us. I think this wraps up our spooky month episodes man yeah no next one. week is hello kitty yes <laughs> that's total, the palate cleanser absolute palate cleanser uh we really loved this i want to keep of course aggressively doing spooky uh topics every october uh thank you guys so much for joining us for this uh we hope you enjoyed it as much as we did and uh yeah We'll be back next week with more Whizbrew. Until then, check us out on Patreon. If you'd like to support us further, patreon.com forward slash Whizbrew. That's patreon.com forward slash Whizbrew. Weekly bonus episodes for $5 a month. And you also get ad-free episodes on the main feed. It's a really nice value add. It helps us really keep this show going. You can check us out on our Discord every Sunday. We watched A Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, actually, we watched Dream Warriors because we thought we were going to be doing the first <laughs> two movies. Uh, but still, it was a great hang. We had so much fun. Uh, and you can uh, get that at the $15 layer and enjoy uh, hanging out with us every Sunday, uh, covering whatever topic we're covering. And not just us. It's the whole little community there uh, coming out every week. It's such a fun crew to hang out with. I really, It is really such a highlight of my Sunday. Uh, and to Twitch.tv forward slash Holdenators Ho. I'm streaming all week long. Twitch.tv forward slash Holdenators Ho. Twitch.tv forward slash Last Podcast Network. We do Tears of a Clown every Wednesday. Woo! It's a great fucking time, dude. Join us for that. Jake! Really got to press the flesh on that Patreon. It is the best primordial way for us to keep this podcast going. And frankly, uh, do you want that to happen, right? Oh, come on, buddy. Come on. <laughs> We're just little guys. We're just little guys who need a little, a little help. Follow me on Twitch, twitch.tv slash Puppet Jared. 
That's the name of my little VTuber avatar. Every Thursday, I do the Cartoon Dumpster, a rollicking riot of uh, crazy animated atrocities from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. It's a grand old time. If you like this show, you will love the Cartoon Dumpster every Thursday over on twitch.tv slash puppet Jared. And always remember, never stop bruising. And keep on whizzing. You fucking bitch. <laughs> <laughs> Freddy's here to say. He does love saying bitch. <laughs> he does. It's very funny. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Justin and so good. Thousands of spring deals at your Nordstrom Rack store. Save big today on new arrivals from Kate Spade, New York, Nike, Sam Edelman, Free People, and Madewell, starting at only $30. Great brands and great prices on dresses, denim, sandals, designer bags, and more. So rack your look and get first dibs on spring styles you want now from just $30 at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find?